following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Over the last several months, actually since the spring, uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through what I think is perhaps the most theologically dense, at least pound for pound, uh, theologically dense book of the Bible that we have. Paul has spent the, Paul who's the author, the Apostle Paul, has spent the first half of the book of Ephesians um, really unpacking gospel doctrine. Here's what the gospel means, or here is the truth, the message of the gospel. And then in the second half of the book, he, he turns a corner and said, here's how you now live in light of these glorious truths. And what Paul is showing us as we go through the book of Ephesians is that the gospel changes everything. The gospel isn't just this thing that we hear one time and we say a prayer in response to it that gets our ticket to heaven punched and we go on our way living the rest of our life. No, no, the gospel transforms every nook and cranny of our lives. And the thing where it goes to work the most, the place, the area of our lives, it goes to work the most is within the context of our relationships, we see this in, in the first half of uh, Ephesians where, where what Paul puts the spotlight on is how our relationship with God has foundationally changed because of the gospel. He says, at one time, because you were dead in your sins, dead in your trespasses, you were alienated from God. You were far off. That you had no life. You had no vibrancy. You had nothing really to hang your hat on. Yet, because of the gospel, you've been made alive. While you were once far off, You've been brought near, and actually so near, in fact, that the primary way that that Paul, the, the primary doctrine of the New Testament is to have union with Christ, that Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. It's this crazy thing that happens. So our relationship with God primarily changes, and we talk about this in the, in the, in the context of this sermon series in, in terms of identity formation. Who you are changes because of the gospel. What's most true about you changes. And then we see how it changes our relationships with others. And and in the first part of the the second half of Ephesians, Paul talks about how uh, the relationships within the church changes. In fact, the church itself is composed of not people who are sort of... um, uh, what do you call it, homogenous, that's the right word, um, but people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, uh, different po- political backgrounds, different takes on life. And, and we see this in, in sort of the defining relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, and God says, because of the gospel, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, and of the two men, there is now one man. And he talks about how now, because of the gospel, the church lives in unity and and in love towards one another, building itself up in love. And then Paul goes to the next area, and and what we see here in the last half of Ephesians chapter 5 into chapter 6 is how the gospel changes the household. And as we take a step back, what the apostle Paul is showing us is that the gospel creates a relational ecosystem of grace and truth. That's what the gospel does. Creates a relational ecosystem of grace and truth. Now, what we're gonna do here for this week and then the two following weeks, um, we are going to talk specifically about how the gospel reshapes marriage, as you could probably pick up from the reading of the word today. And over the next three weeks, I want to share with you, um, it was really hard. I had to whittle down, okay, if i got three weeks to talk about marriage, um, what, what do we got to talk about? There's so much that we could spend time talking about, but we'll, I've whittled it down to the three Ps. We want to talk about um, the, the posture, gospel posture of marriage, the gospel power of marriage, and the gospel purpose of marriage. And we're going to break that up over the next three weeks. This week, we're talking about the gospel posture of marriage. 
And, and this is an important conversation, the marriage conversation in general, because the health of society is determined by the, house, the, the health of the household. This is, this is not a new idea. This is something that even the ancient Greek philosophers have suggested over and over again, is that the health of society rises and falls on the health of the household. And you could take that one step further and say that the health of the household rises and falls with the health of the marriage. Because this is such an important topic that ripples out into every area of life, from from the most minute household to the society at large. This is a topic that I think is deserving of of far more time than three weeks. Um, And you might agree with me, and I think that's something that married couples tend to want more of, is I feel like if I were to just preach on marriage for like the next three months, we'd start to get more and more people come. Because for some reason, married people want to learn how to, you know, be better at marriage, which is great. Um... But we only got three weeks, so if you want more, you can hit up our archive. We've preached through marriage several times, through um, going through the, the book of First Peter, through the book of Colossians. We spent, I think in 2018, I think we spent like eight weeks um, preaching on, it was a marriage series. So there's plenty of resources in our sermon archive if you want to check those out, um, especially if you're a married person, you might be digging that. But I want to say real quick to singles in the room, because I see you, I know that there's singles out there. Um, there is a temptation when you hear the discussion about marriage to check out because this doesn't apply to me in this season of life, right? Well, I disagree with you. I think this is actually just as much for you as it is for a married couple. I got three reasons why. First of all, you might marry someday, okay? Statistically speaking, your chances of getting married are higher than staying single, statistically speaking. Um, Even with marriage on the decline in our culture, as you see um, things like no-fault divorce sort of rising up, there's an increase in that. You see cohabitation up in that. But marriage isn't going anywhere. Marriage is around to stay. In fact, the, the book of the Bible starts with a marriage and ends with a marriage. Marriage is here to stay, and it's likely, it could be likely, if it's in the Lord's will, that you would eventually get married. And if that's the case, you do not want to learn how to fly the plane while it's up in the air, okay? There's a reason why they make flight simulators. A low-pressure environment for you to learn the who's and the what's and the how's of how to, you know, get a giant piece of machinery up in the air and keep it there and keep everybody safe at the same time. So this is kind of what the church functions as here, that in your singleness, the church functions as a flight simulator of sorts for marriage, Um, a place where you can learn what marriage is, that you can become the kind of person that would one day make a good spouse, and in the context of community and the help of brothers and sisters in the faith, learn to identify who would be a good candidate as a spouse someday. So it's a good spot. It's a low-pressure environment to learn about marriage. Secondly, singles are called to disciple married people that they live in community and on mission with. Okay, if you're single, you cannot speak into somebody's marriage from, from a position of experience, but Ephesians and many other parts of the Bible equip us in a way, as single people, where we can speak truth and love into the married people's lives that we're living in community and on mission with. See, you aren't sidelined when it comes to these conversations. You have the word of God. You're equipped with the word of God. Now, married people, this might be Whatever humility it takes for single people to exist in a a predominantly um, married environment, it takes the same kind of humility for married people to have their ears open to what the singles have to say and how they might speak into our lives through the Spirit. So it requires a humility on on both parts, but, but single people You need to learn what marriage is like or what it is and the dynamics of marriage in order to to disciple the married people that you have in in your community, in community on mission with. Now three, and I think this is probably the most compelling, is that having a biblical view of marriage will deepen your understanding of the gospel. 
It will. If you understand what, what God's design for marriage is, if you have a picture of that, that will deepen your understanding of the gospel. Now, for married people, as you live in marriage, it exposes your need. Marriage will expose your need for the gospel in the fact that you sin against your spouse and your sin, spouse sins against you. It, it'll show your need for the gospel in the sense that you need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be faithful and, and loving. But even for people who are on the outside of marriage looking in, it gives you a unique picture uh, of the gospel because marriage is a real-time, enfleshed illustration of the gospel. In fact, as, as Paul um, teaches here in Ephesians 5 about marriage, he talks to wives first and then gets to husbands, and he lays out, and he's talking about husbands and wives and marriage, all of this, and he kind of comes to the end, and he makes this conclusion. He says, listen, this whole time, this mystery of marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all of this stuff about marriage is meant to be a, a mirror, a, a shadow of what is going on in the gospel. And so just learning about marriage will help you understand the gospel in a deeper way. Now, hopefully I've given you an adequate reason, whether you're married or single, to buy in here for the next 45 minutes as we plod our way through Ephesians chapter 5. So let's go. Let's open your Bibles, if you would. There's a pew, in, uh, pew Bible in front of you. If you want to grab that, stick your thumb in Ephesians chapter 5. It's towards the back of your Bible. Otherwise, it's up here on the screen. And we'll be taking a look here. Now, when you look at, um, when you look at this passage here, if you look at Ephesians 5.22, you see this heading at the top. It says, Wives and Husbands. And so when you look at that, just the way that the Bible is formatted, it, it might make it appear that the discussion about marriage begins right there in verse 22. Now, it's true. That, that's the first point where, where Paul acknowledges wives and then goes on to acknowledge husbands. But this conversation about marriage is actually set within a larger discussion that's happened all the way through Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've been with us the last five weeks, I know Pastor Scott, who came from Harvest City in Iowa City, joked about this. Ephesians 5 provides um, three points in a poem, right, if, if you remember that. And the three points of what Paul is instructing the church how to conduct their lives, he says to walk in a certain way, which when the Bible talks about walking, it's not literally one step in front of the other, but the manner in which you live. It says, here's how you walk. First he says in verse 2, to walk in love. That's a call for Christians, all Christians, to walk in love. In verse 8, he calls all Christians to walk in the light. He says, don't walk in the darkness like, like the Gentiles do. Don't, don't live a life of sin, but walk in the light as Christ is in the light. So walk in love, walk in the light. Verse 15 says to walk wisely. So those are your three points. And in doing this, in, in conducting yourself in such a way, verse 17 says that you will know the will of God. So to walk in love, to walk, walk in the light, walk wisely, will open up to you the will of God. And, and verse 21 expresses what this is like. In fact, if you flip over a page to Philippians chapter 2, you see how Paul uses this as if we, if we know the will of God, what it's going to produce in us is a spirit of humility, just as in Philippians 2 4, where, where Paul says to the Philippian church, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Or in other words, some translations say, Don't think so highly of yourself, but view others as more important than yourself. There's this attitude of humility that understanding of walking in love and walking in the light and walking wisely and knowing the will of God cultivates a posture of humility. And the way that Paul articulates this here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he uses the language of mutual submission. He says this. He says, submitting to, and again, this is part of a larger conversation, and this is how he wraps it up. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, the church, the people of God, gospel people, are to be marked by a general posture of submission. Now, to our individualistic, uh, to our ears that have been tuned by an individualistic culture, a culture that says, follow your heart, you do you, right? do what makes you happy, 
The word submission sounds dissonant to us. It's like somebody walked over to the piano keyboard and just slammed their forearms down, right? It's not pretty at all. It just sounds dissonant. It's like, it's like uh, you know, nails on a chalkboard sort of thing. And, and this, 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 the reason why it's so dissonant is because in an individualistic culture, the, the chief end of me is to live a me-centered life, to fill my desires, fill my longings, what I want to do in life. It's a very much, you let an individualistic culture run its course, it's going to end up with a bunch of individualistic, individualistic people who put themselves at the middle. That's what it, what it, what it creates. And the reason why this creates and fears with, with this me-centered life is because to submit or to come under someone else means that I am giving up my rights or the things that I am entitled to in order to place myself below the authority or leadership of somebody else. And to our individualistic culture, this sounds like death. In fact, this might be what Jesus is talking about, that if you want to be my follower, take up your cross. Follow me. And if it doesn't sound like death, it may at least sound like you're making yourself susceptible to oppression or or being taken advantage of because you're taking yourself out of the driver's seat. Now, we, we would be naive to think that that sort of abuse or, or that sort of manipulation of power doesn't happen. Unfortunately, it does, and, and that may explain why so many people recoil at the call of submitting yourself to someone else. People will get hurt when sin and self-centeredness corrupts power. And any abuse of power violates and undermines God's intention for human flourishing. So when power is corrupted, it hurts people. And in no way does God endorse this kind or any kind of the perversion of authority. Because the intent of authority, the thing that in God giving authority to people and to uh, governments or to whatever it might be, or whatever entity, By God divvying out and delegating authority, God is intending to uphold and to enhance all of creation. That's the purpose behind the the delegation of authority, to uphold and enhance all of creation. So when the authority is perverted, not only is it soul damaging, but it is an act of defiance against God. To take authority that God has delegated to you and use it in a way that undermines human flourishing. It's to live as if God doesn't exist and you don't have to give an account for what you do in your life. Now, the gospel is for people who abuse power as much as it is for the oppressed. The gospel reaches down to the oppressed and lifts them up, right? Because those who have been oppressed, the, the, the captives, those who have been smushed under, the gospel reaches down and elevates these people. Says so the meek will inherit the earth. It's good news because in God's righteous judgment, which will come, there will be a day where you will have to give an account for your life. As, as a leader, as somebody who's been delegated authority, you will have to give an account. And, and in that time, All of the wrongs will be righted moving into the new heavens and new earth. But for those who don't respond, those who have authority and abuse it or manipulate it and don't respond in repentance and faith, they'll be judged. They'll have to answer for it. So authority, yeah, can it be abused? Can it be perverted? Of course. You don't have to live long enough to figure that out. But just because it can be abused doesn't mean that we just toss the baby out with the bathwater. It'd be like saying, hey, there's a good chance that I might get in a car accident, so I'm never going to drive again. God has designed authority to be something to be used for good, yet it can go awry. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus, as he stands there in Matthew 28, giving the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
So we as Christians believe that Jesus has all authority. He is the good king that Isaiah 32 promises who rules with wisdom and righteousness and injustice. Jesus, in his authority, always acts according to the massive love in which he has for his people. In fact, Paul talks about this back in Ephesians chapter 3, the height, the breadth, the width, the depth of this great love in which God loves us. This is what drives Jesus to rule in the way that he rules. And it's because of this we can know that in all things, Jesus is ruling and reigning in a way that will work for our good, for the good of those who love him. And so as Christians, while authority can go awry, when we submit ourselves to Jesus and his authority, we can with full confidence come underneath the Lord Jesus. In fact, that's a defining piece. The the first creed of the church was Jesus is Lord. That's that's the, the thing that they said. It's because this thing here, it's acknowledging the fact that Jesus is seated above all things, all the powers, all the authorities, all the rulers of this age and the age to come. Jesus is Lord, and he's a good Lord. And as we submit ourselves to this good and gracious Lord, he also calls us to submit to the under-rulers that he places and gives authority. Now, granted, these are, these are, unlike Jesus, these rulers are fallible. These rulers can make mistakes. These people with authority can, things can go wrong, okay? That, that's just what happens when you're dealing with sinful human beings. Yet, in Jesus' wisdom, he still appoints and delegates his authority to be deployed for the benefit of other people. And we see, like in Romans 13, he talks about the, the, the ruling, the governing authorities, how, how God gives authority to the governments of the world to rule in a way that, that leads, or the, what they're supposed to do is lead to human flourishing, to do their part in creating a society that operates well. You see this in Hebrews 13, when the author says, Submit to your leaders, speaking to the church, right? Submit to your elders, submit to the pastors, those who are keeping watch of, of, your, of your soul. And then here in Ephesians 5 and 6, he talks about how, Paul talks about how, how you submit. There's submission. There are certain positions that God appoints within the household. And so Paul here is borrowing um, from Greco-Roman tradition, as he lays out, here's how these relationships between husbands and wives, between children and and parents, between uh, masters and servants or or employees and employers, how these relationships work. And in the Greco-Roman tradition is they have this thing called the household code. It's been around for a long time. it, It basically tells you this is how you conduct yourself within the household. And when you go back and you read about this, you see the same triad of relationships, husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. Yet, at the center of it is this very patriarchal idea, okay, that the man is at the center, that all of these structures exist for this one dude, for his reputation, for his benefit, for his flourishing. And you even see this not just in the Greco-Roman world, but you see this in pre-first century Jewish culture. If you go back to Josephus, who's a famous Jewish historian around that early era there, he talks about how those people who are in relation to the head of the household are um, viewed as inferior to that patriarch. And Paul, while taking the form of the household code, he basically flips this thing up on end. He re-envisions this household code with the gospel. And the primary way it gets re-envisioned is instead of the patriarch being the center or the foundation of these these relationships, what he does is he, he puts the focus, the primary emphasis on Jesus himself. That it's not about propping up the dude, it's about propping up the king of kings and lord of lords. It's about showing his glory, his honor, and his fame within the household. 
And as Jesus is put at the center of the household, each person involved in these relationships is called to bring honor to Jesus and to glorify him in a unique and distinct way. It's all about Jesus. The household is about Jesus. And one of the unique things that Paul does is that he speaks directly to the people who the Greco-Roman world would have ignored. So because the Greco-Roman, the the first century Jewish house rules viewed women and children and slaves as inferior, they didn't even address them. They just told men, here's what you got to do. But Paul, he, he speaks directly to those who are viewed by the culture as inferior, and he elevates them to a place of dignity and honor. See, this, when we look at this with our Western 21st century eyes, we, we don't see this right away. But this would have been profound to the original audience, that, that Paul would address women and children and servants. And so the first place that, that Paul talks here within the context of marriage, the fir- first group of people he addresses are, are wives. He says, wives... It's like he's looking you in the eye. He's like, I see you. I acknowledge you. Hey, you're part of this. You're not just an accessory piece. You're just not a means to, you are part of something that God is doing in creating a new humanity. He says, wives, I see you. I want to honor you. He says, here's the role that you play. Here's the role that you play in this new humanity. He says, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Now like I said, this, for a lot of people, modern ears, it is repulsive. <laughs> Right, modern listeners, you, you take this to the culture, and, and they're going to say, "We don't want to hear none of that." It's unspec- unspectacular because one of the things that that has unfortunately happened is it, we have lost Paul's author is is the author's intent behind elevating and giving dignity to the wives within the household, and it's used to be it's a it's weaponized in order to uphold the patriarchy to have some sort of dominance structure. But here again, to first century people, this is a revolutionary thing where Paul first addresses the wives. It's a huge innovation to acknowledge them as humans, to say, I see you as image bearers of God, created in equal dignity, value, and worth as your husbands. There is no scale here. You are equals before the Lord, but even in being equals... It does not necessarily mean that there is equivalence, that there are unique roles that happen within God's design for marriage. Now, Paul says to wives, here's how you live into this new humanity. Here's how you participate in this cosmic kingdom that Jesus has brought and is unfolding before us. That as you come under your husbands, and let me me qualify this, your husbands, Jesus-honoring leadership, as you submit yourself to him, you are mirroring the church's submission to Jesus' authority, Jesus' leadership, Jesus' lordship. See, you you are demonstrating the church's response to a good husband. Now, Paul says that that you show this, you demonstrate this love or or this response, this this coming under of Christ that the, the church has, that you do this even when it's hard. So you can say, okay, well, I'll submit to my husband when it's easy or when I agree with what he has to say. But Paul says that in all things, submit to your husband. That in everything. Now, doing so, that's hard, guys. I, I, I don't have firsthand experiences, but I know me. 
uh, as a husband, and I cannot imagine what it would be like to submit to me. I don't know. It's a hard calling. Let, let's, let's, let's not dress it up as something that's not challenging or, or going against the grain. But as you live this submissive life to your husband, you're doing it so in a way that honors Jesus and honors your husband. And as Paul calls us wives into submission, we have to be sure that we articulate this, that this is a dignified and strong kind of submission. This is not a call to be wimpy. This is not a call to have no backbone, to have no opinion, to be mindless and voiceless and just cower in fear to what your husband has to say. That's not at all what this is presenting to wives. God has given you wives, God has given you agency to think, to desire. In some ways, God may have gifted you in ways that are stronger than your husband. And and that doesn't mean you turn those things off so your husband doesn't do anything, or your husband's got to do it all. It's, it's still honoring the leadership of Jesus so, of Jesus and your husband. And, and even in the sense that, that you've been given agency to think and you can even influence your husband to let your desires be made known. And as you do so, there's still this humility that at the end of the day, I'm willing to deny my own rights in order to honor my husband. Now, this, this takes great strength. This is not for the weak of heart. It takes great strength and great trust in Jesus to come under a dude who's sinful, right? Who's got a heart that can be, have twisted desires. And one of the things that makes it so hard is because that this, this calling runs against the, the natural desire that we have, okay? So in the curse of sin, in Genesis chapter 3, God, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat, and there's this curse that's pronounced over creation and over Adam and Eve. And one of the things, not only is Eve going to have a hard time, uh, it's, childbirthing is going to be pretty brutal at this point. One of the things that she's also going to struggle with is this desire to rule over her husband, to, to usurp the role of leadership from his... Now, this is kind of a cocktail of a disaster where she wants this position, but also, at least in the case of Adam and Eve here at the beginning, Adam was pretty apathetic. Adam was not a good leader. Adam was kind of a pathetic husband in the sense of, of guarding and protecting and leading his wife in the way that he should have. And it's because of this curse of sin and the unique warpedness that affects women and wives with, there's a unique one that we're going to see here in a minute with husbands, there is this resistance that we have to come underneath of him because he might fail, because I might be able to do better. And if he fails and I'm stuck with a bonehead, what then? What then? When First Peter 3, the apostle Peter recognizes Sarah from Sarah and Abraham recognizes Sarah's submission to Abraham, even though he was kind of a bonehead. And he was. I mean, if, if Genesis 12 and 20 makes for some pretty interesting reading as far as Abraham's track record of being a good husband. Yet, the apostle says that holy women adorn themselves in submission to their husbands just as Sarah did. And he says to, to the wives, you are her child if you do good and don't fear what scares you. See, this calling that God has for you to submit yourself to the husband is a scary thing. But God says here in his word that you do good if you don't run away from the scariness. You do good, you honor God if you live into this and, and, and say no to that sinful pull that tells you, I want to be my own. Now, wives received this hard calling first. And because of the order, you might think that, okay, you do this first and then. But again, going back to the dignifying of, of Paul lifting up the wives. Now, you see there is a disproportional amount of instruction that happens where Paul says, hey, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then, 
He spends three verses there. And then he spends about eight verses talking to husbands. Here's how you should be toward, here's your posture toward your wife. And what Jesus is doing here, as, as he calls women into this hard role of submission, he calls men into the even harder role of making this hard thing easy for them. And how are they to make it easy? Verse 25 says, by loving her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this might seem like a given in our culture. Like, our idea of marriage, very much, there's always been a romantic tint to it. But again, going back to the first century audience, marriage was utilitarian. Marriage was about protecting um, my status as a husband, of giving me kids and a heritage that I can accumulate wealth and pass it down to. And so in this view of marriage, wives were viewed as a means to an end. People, they were viewed as a beast of burden. Someone who I could throw extra responsibility, extra load on, and they could kind of carry a load and help me advance my agenda. Right? That, that's sort of the patriarchal mindset. And this leans into the curse of sin, which affects how men treat women. Because you may not see it explicitly in Genesis 3, but one of the curses that's placed upon men is that the ground, the work that he does, is now burdensome. It's now toilsome. He's striving, sweat from the brow. He's working hard, and it seems so futile. And so what happens there is this displaced relationship with how men relate to their work where they tend to get their identity in what they do and what they accomplish, their success. And in order to live in, in honor of the idol of success, what happens is that I have to put my wife and my relationships and my kids on the altar to achieve what I'm trying to get. And in doing so, I treat my wife like a beast of burden, someone who is a means to an end of my agenda. And Paul just radically shifts this. He breaks the norm by saying, husbands, love your wife. And not, not just this romantic-y, lovey-dovey kind of thing, but a, a profound, self-giving love. A kind of love that you would lay down your life for her, that, that you would serve her in such a way that it's as if she is actually part of you, which Paul says she is. Right? Going back to, to the original cadence of, of, of marriage, Paul says this, he says, therefore, he's quoting Genesis, therefore a man shall live, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, the reason why husbands love their wife is because they have been enjoined in a supernatural way to their wives. And as the two become one flesh, it should be impossible for a husband to hate his wife or to treat her in a, a less than honoring way. In fact, that's why Paul says in verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So you see here this attitude, this posture of husbands. Now it's interesting if you go through these characteristics that we see here, so if you go through um, verse 25, he says, um, uh, love the church. Um, he says, sanctify her, which means to cleanse her, washing of the water of the word, um, to present her in splendor, um, to, to love their wives as their own bodies, uh, to nourish and cherish. The, those, those actions are generally maternal, Right? in the realm of house, think of it, in like the generic way of, of organizing the house, to wash, to nurture, to cherish. See, this is the posture that husbands are to have towards their wives, to build them up, to see to their flourishing. This is the kind of love. Now, to what extent do we love her? To the extent that you're willing to give your life away for her. 
Because that's exactly what Jesus does for the church. Jesus uses his power, Jesus uses his authority to act in order to benefit the church. That while we were, when Jesus found us, we were by no means marriage material. We were tainted and marred by sin. We were wayward in the arms of other idols. Yet Jesus sets his undeserved love upon us, and he, as the grandest gesture of all times, laid his life down. And at the cross, he frees us from the bondage of sin. The, the entanglement that we have as our lives get enmeshed with sin, he, he liberates us from sin. And he enjoins us to himself. He cleanses us of our sin. He makes us beautiful. He restores us to glory, holy and beautiful and radiant. This is all right here in Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, Jesus accomplishes this by becoming our sin. All of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, he takes it upon himself, and it's nailed to the cross. All of our iniquity, all of our failures, all of our rebellion, Jesus absorbs that whole thing for us. And as he bleeds for us, he does so that we might live. He, he was wounded so that we could be healed. He was tossed out so that we can be brought in. See, Jesus shows us how power is deployed for the benefit of others. What other king gets down and dies for his subjects? Now, husbands, listen. This is the template for how you ought to love your wife. This self-giving, others-loving, self-sacrificing love. And not just in one grand gesture. Not just in one big gesture, but millions of little gestures of, of self-denial and, and others elevating that occur daily. It's, it's a consistent pattern of putting her needs before your own, nourishing her, seeing to her flourishing, making sure that you can present her back to the Lord when he comes back as one holy and pure and radiant. Now listen, when you see, when you see what kind of husbands Wives are to come underneath. Who wouldn't want to submit to that kind of loving headship? Right, who, who wouldn't want to entrust themselves to, to one who's always concerned about the benefit and the well-being of the other? See, this is where the beauty of marriage is really upheld. And it requires the power of the gospel for husbands to live in that kind of way and for wives to come underneath her husband in that kind of a way. Now, let me, just, let me just talk about something very practical here because I think when we talk about this, there, there's, a lot of thing, uh, there's a lot of ways that our minds can run and, 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 and twist this or, or get some sort of misunderstanding about what this looks like. So let, let me break this down. How does this dynamic of, of wives submitting to their husbands and husbands loving their wives, how does this actually play out in the, uh, in the work of decision-making? I mean, substantial decision-making. Like, not just what color shirt you're going to wear today, but, like, where you're going to live in a year or, or what church you're going to belong to. Now, in an egalitarian model, which is basically um, the, an egalitarian will look at this and say, husband, like there is no such thing as headship. It's, it's everybody are equal. So you, it's sort of like we're moving together. In, in this sort of, of system, in this model where there is no headship, the loudest voice wins. Might be the husband, might be the wife, but that's how it works. The loudest voice wins. It'd be like going on a bike ride with two separate bikes, okay? So, hey, let's go to this ice cream shop, and you start out on there, and then somebody's like, well, actually, I want to go to the museum. 
And before you know it, you start drifting in two different ways. Or, or the other person just badgers the other person in doing what they want. You know, in the end, you might be together, but, but how you arrived at the conclusion, there, there's going to be friction. There's, there, you're not going to see this dynamic of humility and honor that we see here in this, this more uh, complementarian model. And, and in this model that, where there is um, submission and, and, and Christ-like love toward the wife, this requires a cooperative effort. It's more like a tandem bike, okay, where, where you got two people on a bike, you got one bike, two people pedaling, but there's one dude at the, at the helm, so one person, you, you know, that, that one in the back, they don't, their thing's fixed, all right? You know what I'm talking about? You can try to yank that thing as much as you want. It's not going anywhere. And, and as this husband who's called to steer and to be the head and pave the way for the, the trajectory of the family, if, if he is steering in a way that completely ignores her, he is not loving her. He's not honoring her. He's just doing what he wants. He's acting selfishly. But as he steers, if, if he's taking into account what her desires are, what, what she feels like God is, is calling her into, there's more of this dynamic. And, and then he runs that through a rubric of two things. First of all, he's asking the question, does my decision aim to serve her? Or am I trying to serve myself? That's the first question. Does it serve her or does it serve myself? And then the second question we ought to ask is, will this decision help make my wife holy? Like, does this help her grow in Christ-likeness? Does this help her transform from one degree of glory to the next? Now, when it comes to a logjam, if he's thinking through this thing and thinking, okay, does it, does it make her, um, does it honor her? Does it, does it um, serve her? Does it make her holy? And he's convinced that this is the way forward. And, and, and the wife says, I don't agree with that, which she's entitled to disagree with. But when it comes to a logjam, what happens in this dynamic is that she actually exercises humility and defaults to him. And as she does, she's trusting Jesus. I'm, I'm trusting my husband, but ultimately I'm trusting Jesus is going to keep us on the rails. Now, I'll say this, that, that if the husband is not answering yes to those first two things, or maybe he's got some sort of blindness um, to, at, to at the questions of, does this serve her? Is this helping her make her holy? And she's like, I disagree. I don't think that's right. Like the spirit is convicting me of something different. She has the brotherhood, like the community of people to speak into that dude's life. This is what it goes back to this mutual submission of this humility towards one another. That if you are placed in community, one of the advantages is if your husband's going off the rails, you go to your missional community, you go to your husband's fight club and say, things aren't right here, okay? And you get to pull in other counsel to help you move forward in a way that honors Jesus. Now, that's a very generic way to, to speak through this, and, and it varies from situation to situation, but it gives you an idea of how this complementary, this, this headship and submission thing works when it's viewed through the lens of the gospel. And when marriages look like this, when marriages have this sort of give and take of of, of submission and humility and honor and service, this demonstrates to people on the outside the gospel. This shows the power of grace. This shows the, 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 the intensity of love that actually the gospel would reverse the curse that we see laid out in Genesis 3. And now this new dynamic that's happening in the gospel where wives are entrusting themselves to the Lord and in turn trusting themselves to their husbands and wives, or excuse me, husbands, loving their wives as Christ loved the church. See, in this we see the posture of marriage. There's a posture of humility and of honor. Now, for, for men, for husbands, th this, this takes the form of self-giving, self-denying love. And for wives, this takes the form of entrusting myself to his leadership. 
Now, this posture of marriage, this humility, which expresses honor, we see this. It, it's like the final charge here as, as Paul wraps up this section in verse 33. He says, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. What is that? Even, even going back to the beginning, to, to do this out of reverence for Christ. This is about honor. This is about humility. This is the posture that the gospel creates, and this is what it looks like when it's applied in the context of marriage. And the way that we can do this, the way that we can, can organize our households in this way is because we see what Jesus has done for us. We see that Jesus is the true and better leader who lays down his life, that even as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we're taking a wafer that represents the body of Christ that was broken, the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. We see that this is the kind of love that Christ has for the church that ought to be reflected within our marriages. And as we see this sacrificial love that Jesus has towards the church, the church's response is to entrust ourselves to the Lord. And, and, and one of the ways that we do that is by allowing the gospel to reshape our marriage in a way that brings honor and praise to Jesus. Father, we, we thank you that you do not instruct us on how to organize our lives without first giving us the example of Christ. The one who, who laid down his life so that sinners like us could live. We pray that the marriages in this room, the future marriages that are to come, would be all about Jesus, reflecting his glory. It would be to the praise of his glorious grace. Lord, we, we cannot do this without your power, without the, sup the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit to have husbands to love in such a sacrificial way, to have wives come under their husbands in such an honoring way. We need the Spirit to help us. We need a, a supernatural power that overrides the pull of sin and the curse. And so would you grant that to us now? as we come to this meal? Would it be a means of grace to empower us to live in gospel-honoring, gospel-demonstrating marriages to show your love and your mercy and your kindness to the world that watches? We ask this in your powerful and mighty name. Amen.